What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Rachel Brill, head of Unscripted at Epic's Cable Network. What a fun episode. Me and Rachel had a blast catching up. She is such a good hang. Uh, we went back to her days at the U, the University of Miami, when she was an athletic trainer in locker rooms with some of the biggest NFL athletes of all time. Uh, she loves her sports, Rachel. She really does. We even talked about hockey, which is uh, not something I do often. Uh, we talked about her time working at Zoo Productions for Barry Posnick and John Stevens and her brief run in politics, working for the Clintons, dating a Secret Service agent. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We went there. Uh, we talked about her love for mountain climbing, which has changed her life in so many ways. Uh, her time at TNT, and now she's at Epics where on August 24th, The Contender returns from super producer Mark Burnett, a 12-episode boxing competition series. Very excited to check it out. You should check it out on Epics, August 24th. So this was my sit-down with Rachel Brill, a personal favorite episode. I don't always say that, but this one was a personal favorite. Rachel Brill, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> So we're here in the legendary MGM Tower in beautiful Beverly Hills. And could we have gotten a bigger conference room for this? No. We like to go big or go home. This is like, <laughs> it's epics for a reason. This is like the scene in Batman where he invites, uh, what, Heather Locklear? Yes. Is that who it is? Or Kim Bassinger? One of them. When he invites Kim Bassinger over for dinner at the opposite ends of a very long table. You are sitting at the very opposite end of this very long conference room that's quite intimidating, especially well, when you're surrounded by... Oscars and Emmys everywhere. I was going to say that. So when you come into the office every day, uh, just to put it in perspective, when you work yeah. in the reality space, yes. when I come into the office every day, I am passing a Dave and Buster's. <laughs> I'm passing an Islands. Okay. When you come into the office every day, it says MGM on the building and you've got pictures of Rocky Balboa. James mm -hmm. Bond, mm -hmm. uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, now The Handsmaid Tale, and Epics is, you know, owned by MGM. So you, do you feel even more part of Hollywood history just being part of this new emerging cable network? There is a sense of gravitas to the extent even when back in my zoo days we were working on the Paramount Pictures lot mm -hmm. to drive in through those gates every single day knowing that you are an unscripted exec, a reality producer. You're sitting in Desilu's office, which is what we had oh, at Zoo yeah. Productions. You think to yourself – who the fuck am I? <laughs> like, how did I get here? And how is this life? Because it's pretty cool. You don't want to like take that importance away and be a little too self-serving or think that you're too precious in the position in which you sit. But there's something so cool about walking into this MGM building every single day what, and what, knowing the history here and knowing that we're a part of something new that has such a legacy, but in building a network and an original programming slate that can have the same level of impact if we do our jobs, knock on wood. Right. You know, hopefully we have that opportunity to make some really killer 
killer shows. You, you kind of breezed through something very quickly there. Yeah. You were on the Desilu <laughs> stages at Paramount? We were. We were in um, what was situated next to Stage 21, okay. and it was the original Desilu Productions office. So Barry Posnick and John Stevens' office was Desilu's. That's where they had their meetings. That's where they strategized all their storylines for I Love Lucy. And, and to even think about that and sitting in my office, which was adjacent to theirs, which I swear at one point had mold in it, and I got sick for a period of time, and we investigated it, and there was no mold. But being in those offices until 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and just thinking about the history there, and then also being on a lot, like working on a lot in general, there's just an energy yeah. that you don't get when you're in an office building or you're you know, sandwiched in some obscure um, place. So. There wow. were a lot of a lot of fun late nights there. That's for sure. But who was their deal with? Like, how did they actually physically get on the lot in the first place? Who who did who financed Zoo? What was the deal back then? Well, back then we were um, in a period of the writer's strike, so Paramount had opened up the lot to just any producer or production oh, company they that just wanted to, to lease space. They just needed rent they just offices. They needed tenants. They needed tenants. Ah. So we were at that crucial point. We had just moved. This is 09? So no, this is 08. This is probably, oh, I want to say. Can you believe it's been 10 years? No, I can't Rachel Brill, been, 10 years ago. I've been in this business for 20 years. And yes, I'm a child. I'm really just 21. You've been in this business <laughs> for 20 years? Well, since college. So we can go like way, way. Oh, we're way gonna back. go back. We're gonna. You, th- you think I'm gonna? You think I'm gonna gloss over the U? There's no way. We're gonna dig deep into the U in a second. Oh, no. But okay, I get it. So rider strike. So Paramount right. needs to release offices, and these bozos, Barry and John, yes. are like, let's get on a real Hollywood lot. Oh yes, and that's, that's exactly what we did because you have awesome. to think about that time for us was just after Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader. Mm. So Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader started with me, John, and Barry at the time, Zoo Productions was the three of us in a one-room office renting space on top of Napa Valley Grill in Westwood. <laughs> and it was one of those sort of WeWork facilities. And then fifth grader hit, and then the all-three acquisition came, and we can breeze through that. But we then needed office space, and we had uh, – Girls Behaving Badly was already off the air at that point, but we had speeders on on Court TV, which then came True TV, which was – Oh, my God, uh, nine seasons deep or something. I mean, we had quite a few shows. We had some MTV shows at the time, so we were just expanding. And that stage or that office building connected to Stage 21 gave us that um, room to expand and scale. And what um, was your title at this point? When you entered entered Zoo, what level did you enter at? Oh, I entered as an intern. I, like, started at the ground up. Really? (laughs) My trajectory was intern to assistant – to executive assistant for John and Barry. Well, sorry, to uh, intern to PA. I only lasted one season of Girls Behaving Badly, which was first season of that show with Chelsea Handler and Kira Saltanovich. Um, lasted one season, and everybody saw me on set dressed to the nines, wearing stilettos. But I would still run around and like chase trash down and do craft service and like chase down releases. Like I would do everything dressed. The way I'm usually over. Is this because in one of your college classes style. they said you need to dress for the job you want, but you yes. but you didn't realize that doesn't apply to a job on set? No, I'm like I just want to show people that I can run in heels really fast and chase down a release. Question: Do you have a stylist? I don't have a stylist. This is all it's you. Innate, yeah. Because when you came in, to, it's innate. <laughs> <When> you, <laughs> I'm such an asshole. Sorry. <laughs> 
when you because you when you came in here before we started rolling, yes. I, I told you you always look so stylish, <laughs> and you. I feel like such a schlub in your presence. <laughs> but you are, and I told you you now have the job you want. I mean, I'm sure there's yes. future jobs you want, yes. but you, you've arrived at a pretty good place. Like you can phone it in now, Rachel. But I will never phone it in. It's not my personality. It's not in my DNA. I think that's why everybody loves working with me because I'm just a crazy machine. Like I just can't stop. And yes, I want to look nice, whether it's on a mountain or in, in a boardroom. But, um, but so going back to like, I was dressed in heels all the time and everybody would make fun of me and I can take it because I went to the U and worked with the football team. Um, so and Barry um, and John is like working in a locker room. It's totally working in a locker room, and that's the best. It was zoo for a reason. It's it was a zoo. It was a crazy zoo, and I've never laughed so much in my life. I mean, those guys are two of the most entertaining. Well, Barry Barry's the first guest <laughs> on the show. I I know that. And Episode then David Eilenberg was the second. And David Eilenberg, right? Who, <laughs> so you need Michael Wright, and he, then you have all of my I have bosses. everybody, every boss you've ever had. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and Eilenberg easily crossed over with Posnick, right, mm-hmm. when they were in their Burnett days, right? Yeah, yeah. But I would love for you to describe for me, before we go to your backstory, because yeah. since we're on the subject of Zoo, I am so fascinated by the stories I have been told of Barry and John uh-huh. as a team when they were together, yes. right? When they were the Hall and Oates yes. of reality television, because yeah. uh, I couldn't come up with a more current <clears throat> uh, metaphor. Uh, I've been told that them in a room was just like lightning in a bottle. That they were an incredible tag team in the room. Yes. And I'm always fascinated by how producing partners work because I've always been solo, right, mm-hmm. for the most part when I go into a room with an idea. Can you describe for me what it was like going into a room with them when it was time to pitch at a network? Oh, gosh. Um, <clears throat> Hollow Notes is probably a really good example. I would say Penn and Teller, but it's not because they <laughs> both them, talk a lot. Silent. So it's Penn <laughs> they, and Penn? Or? It's, yeah, it's the, the, the level of energy is driven by the fact that I've never seen two people so in tune with one another mm. that can complete their sentences like they've been a married couple for years. And they have a dynamic that is constantly of never at each other's throats unless it is from a creative space or a comedic space. Yeah. And their ability to so quickly pull you out of one of the most awkwardly um, inappropriate moments into just like pissing in your pants laughing, it, there's there's nothing better than the two of them together. Um, they also are creatively wired that they just make shit up as right. they go along. So I think that's what most producers do. We're creatives. We just, you know, come up with everything we need to on the fly and their ability to do that in such an entertaining manner. Like they should have had a show together. Barry right. shouldn't have been the only one hosting a game show. Well, I've talked about this. <laughs> they I, both should have done it. I talked about this before in one of the older episodes, but John Stevens, when I first got to all three, John mm-hmm. was still there. Barry had already left mm-hmm. and he was running his own shop at Electus at the time. And I barely crossed over with Barry at Electus on my way out the door. I get into all three and I'm the new kid. Like I'm the new Opco head in the building. Yeah. John Stevens is like that cool senior yeah. who's like on his way out and <clears throat> like knows all the tricks with all the teachers mm-hmm. and knows all the best hiding spots and knows where all the parties are. Yeah. And he took me out to lunch one day and I was just like enamored with the guy. He was so cool and he so did not care. Yeah. You know, he had already made his checks. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he was he was doing great. And he was and he was so nice. And not everybody at the time when I first got in the building mm-hmm. was inviting me out for lunch as the new guy. 
And I'm like forever indebted to him for that. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, this guy is so cool. Yeah. And he has so many cool cars and flat so and cool flat uh, bill caps. Oh, uh, yeah. Baseball caps that he wears. Yeah. But, talk, but about, I, talk about a style. And I can't, <laughs> I can't pull that off. Um, all right. So let's, let's go back. <clears throat> yeah. Where did you grow up? I don't know anything about your backstory. Oh, you don't? I don't know. I don't really know anything pre you. Pre me. Well, so I grew no, up. No, I'm at pre Miami, right, University right. of Miami. Yeah, right, I don't know anything right. pre that. So, um, so I'm a Valley girl. I grew up here in LA. I didn't know I'm, that. I'm I'm from Woodland Hills. I am. No shit. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in Agora. I did not. I grew up in Agora until I was 13, and then I moved up to Santa Cruz, California. Oh, uh, okay. So you're a Woodland Hills girl. I'm a Woodland Hills girl, but my story sort of tethers into Agora Westlake mm. um, because I went to El Camino, which would have been my home, you know, yeah. public high school, LAUSD, the worst school system in the entire universe. Sorry, I didn't say that. Um, I, Eli I was Lair, there. another another Is he really? product of LAUSD on I, the east doing side. It. We're doing okay, but I lasted a year, okay. and then I left. <laughs> Where'd you go? You went private? I, um, I went to Conejo Valley. I went to Westlake. Oh, you That's went to Westlake. I graduated, yes. Have we played the name? Have we not played this name game before? I don't think so. Do you know Casey Preston? Of course I do. Casey Preston. Casey Preston was like the one that everybody had a crush on because he was the best looking quarterback. On Casey our Preston team. was my quarterback. Yes. At Cal Lutheran, where I played football. I so I trained uh, Casey Preston and the football team. I was an athletic trainer in high school at Westlake, okay. which is what led me on this crazy sort of sports athletic path. But got it. Yeah. So forever you were like a fan of sports in every way. Always. I grew up a football fan. I grew up an ice hockey fan. I wanted to play ice hockey desperately. Ice I just hockey. Thought as like a twelve, thirteen year old girl in the valley. Um, my best friend Heather and I, who grew up on the same block, we would do roller hockey outside. Um, yep. and I would buy, like, I was obsessed with, um, Luke Robitaille. He was my man. Yep. Like if I could do anything, it was just to like grow up and marry Luke Robitaille. Luke um, Robitaille yes. was your sports crush growing up. He was up. my sports crush growing up. Well, and Chucky too, John Gruden, but that's a whole other <laughs> story. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. I just, there was something, there was something about the Kings. There was something about Luke and then Rob Blake and just the whole team at the time. Um, now, wait, hold up. Did, was your dad or mom raised in Southern California? Because for you to have a hockey influence no. in a Southern California house, oh. your parents must have been from like back east or something. They Yes. Yeah, so dad is from Milwaukee and he was there actually an Olympic level speed skater. Okay. There you go. So see, that, see. he had the F and he also played football. So I think, um, you know, tethered to his history and his legacy, whether he like, he never breathed down our throats at all, but we knew that that was where, he, from where he came. And I grew up a competitive um, slalom downhill skier and I was in Taekwondo. Like we were always very athletic and active. Okay. That's always been a part of my life. And I think that I couldn't be a figure skater because I sucked, <laughs> but I, my mom wanted me to grow up and be a figure skater. Okay. Um, so I then said, no, I'm a tomboy. I'm going to do the cool thing. I'm going to play ice hockey. Well, I failed at that too. <laughs> Didn't last very long. You played ice hockey at what age? I tried to play at Isoplex, which is where the Kings trained out in Van Nuys um, for a year. And I was just, I was so shitty. At- How old? I was 13. So this is like Mighty, du- Mighty Ducks era. Yes. Obsessed with the Mighty Ducks. Yeah, I was too. I, I By the way, I rollerbladed and played street hockey. Yeah. Well, that was like a big emerging of hockey in Southern California. In, but I think the Mighty Ducks had a lot to do with yeah, it. Yeah, and the it's movies. also because we didn't have a football team. Uh, so, by the way, I'm looking up Luke Robitaille right now. I'm not he's trying number to be rude. 20. I'm looking he's up married Luke to a beautiful woman named Stacia. I have to see what Luke Robitaille, because I have no memory of what Luke Robitaille actually looked so like. he was, I don't know if he's still the coach of the, I think he's the general manager of the Kings now. But Yeah, I think he's in the front office. Oh, I can see that. I can see it. I mean, I wouldn't say traditional good looks. 
But I guess for a hockey player. Yeah, I mean, that's Is this how you of, remember him, this photo I'm holding of him, him on my phone yes. right now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's kind of like a a more beat up Matt Dillon yes. with, with long hair. Super beat up. Yeah. But then there's like the Marty McSorley's who really took the beating. Oh my God, you're really going back to the old <laughs> LA Kings days. These are, these are names from my childhood. Oh my God. And Paul Coffey. Like, I, I mean, one of my most prized possessions at the time was a, um, a hat that was signed by the whole team. And of course I wore it to Disneyland on um, Splash Mountain and then lost it <gasps> and it flew away. And I think I cried more than oh I cried God. over maybe my cat dying when I was like 10 years old. They but couldn't retrieve? Could not retrieve it. So I'm like, okay, my hockey team dreams are dashed. I need to move on to something else. So then I went back into Taekwondo. But <laughs> of course, of course, you did Taekwondo. Of course, Rachel Burrell did Taekwondo. Yes, I did. But... Uh, all right, so how did you end up at Miami, and why Miami? So I said, based on my high school experience, I am not staying in LA. I'm not going to San Diego. I'm not going to Arizona. I'm not going to Santa Barbara, where everybody from LA goes, unless they go to an Ivy. Um, and I don't have the grades to get into an elite school. So I'm going to go where I can go to film school and um, go to sports medicine, medicine school as well. Okay. And I can train a team. And mm. at that point, my objective was, well, I want to train champions. I mean, <laughs> why would you want <laughs> to go gonna train else? a team, right? <laughs> if you're going to train a team, why not go to Miami? So it checked all those boxes. <laughs> checked every single box. It had film a really, school, like great a sports. decent film school, a really great broadcasting school, great sports, like championship level, baseball, hockey, and swimming. And um, I early actioned. I got in. And they said, you can also move to school or move to Miami um, six weeks early, and you can be a part of two-a-days and be a student athletic trainer. Okay. So that was, like, the hook for me. Okay. So like, this... I can now go work with a football and baseball team as a trainer doing something that I love. But I also walked in saying, like, make no mistake, I'm not going to become a doctor. I'm not going to become a physical therapist. I want to create television about sports. That is my oh. goal here. I want to study both huh. so I can do that. I never had the opportunity to do anything in the sports category until recently. Really? But, mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was just, you just want to combine two of your loves eventually. I did. I did. I did. And now finally I've had that opportunity. But Okay, um, give people a sense of when you stroll in fresh out of high school, yeah. stroll into this Miami <laughs> locker room. With one of the biggest, baddest football teams in college yes. football. <laughs> Describe some of the future pros and notables that were there at the time. So my Miami years ended up being five in total. So that was from 97 to 2002. 2002, we won the national championship at the Rose Bowl against the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Is that the Ken Dorsey years? That is Ken Dorsey years. It is the former Butch, Butch Davis years that then turned into um, um, uh, Larry Coker years, who won the championship. But... My very first day, freshman year, was preseason during two-a-days. And I walk in, and I have a dude by the name of Edward Reed. I have a dude by the name of Santana Moss. And I have a dude by the name of Reggie Wayne. And they're like the three triplets, and they're best friends. And then on top of that, we have Jeremy Shockey and Vince Wolferk. And we have um, Jarrett Payton, who is Walter Payton's son. We have Edron James. We have, I mean, the list goes on and on. Greats. Greats. I had 20. NFL greats. NFL greats. 24 first round draft picks in the five years that I went to University of Miami and worked for the team. And I didn't holy, work for the whole five years. Holy but. crap. Yeah. In the five years you were there, you pretty much averaged five players getting drafted in the yes. first round every year. Yes. And where did The Rock come in or out? Was he preceding so this? So he was, he preceded me by, I think, five or six years. Right. 
Uh, DJ, I don't know how old you are, but <laughs> I think he's. I think he's forty-seven, maybe. Yeah, he's late forties now. Yeah, yeah. So, and I'm not forty yet, but. Um, Just but, had to slip that in there. Yes, <laughs> I'm not. Fun fact: You share a birthday with The Rock, right? I share. Well, with I was. Dwayne. Yes, technically we do. Wait, what do you mean technically? <laughs> well, because he's May second, I'm May third. Oh, okay. You so don't really share a birthday. We sort of. I. I say we share a birthday. But We're he, birthday like, he like makes a point to like say happy birthday to you. Every he does. Year, doesn't he? He's the nicest guy in the world. Oh, and this I, is because of the show, the series that we the, got to that work we did. on together. This is where we first yes. really met. <laughs> we did. I know. I I always say to people, and I think this is. I think Eilenberg and I talked about this <clears throat> when we did the hero <clears throat> for TNT. As a dude, and I was a huge fan of The Rock. Like I'm a huge wrestling guy, and in high school, The Rock was like my my guy. I had a poster in my room and everything. Yeah. And when I finally got to meet him, you know, it's just that ego of being a guy. You want to find something wrong yeah. with him so you can, like, go back to your girlfriend or your wife and be like, yeah, The Rock's amazing, but right. you, know, you could not find a flaw in no. this man if you spent 100 years analyzing none. his life work. He is absolutely He's none. the funniest guy in every room. <clears throat> He's the most handsome guy in every room. He's the kindest Guy in every room. He remembers every assistant's name. Yes. He is the best. He is, his ability to remember everybody's name and connect on a one-on-one level, whether he's met you once for 10 seconds or has known you for 10 years, is remarkable. Absurd. It's a, it's a skill that I don't think you could pay enough and train your brain enough to function at that level. It's just remarkable. Fun fact for me. Do you know who I share a birthday with? Who? Mark Burnett. Oh. Oh, that's a great <laughs> July seventeenth. Share a birthday, Mark Burnett. Oh, I love that. I well, had you. I had Posnick. I'm just yeah. circling the wagons yes. to eventually work my way up to Mr. Burnett. <laughs> How much interaction have you had with Mark since you got the job here? Um, a little bit, not not entirely. You know, right. I'm not in the office of the CEO. I'm not at that level, but um, but he um, t- he certainly I mean- he supports what what's so great, and and I hear all of this from. Um, you know, from Michael in our conversations that we have, but the level of support that that Mark has for Epics, yeah. becoming this standalone premium network that has its own programming strategy and is really going to make a dent in that premium landscape and compete with HBO, Showtime, and Stars. I mean, that's all that we could ask for. So, yeah. University of Miami, it's good to you. Yeah. What gets you back out west? What gets you your first TV gig? So. Bringing it back full circle to Barry Posnick yet again. I, um, with my majors at University of Miami, I had the sports medicine thing with training the football, baseball, and tennis teams at the time, traveling with them, staying really busy. I then had political science as my second major. So I had to service that. Right. I'm glad, you're, I'm, I'm glad you're going here. This is, yes. <laughs> when we saw each other a few months ago and I told you I wanted you to be on the show, yes. you just sprung this oh. political. Yep. stint you had on mm-hmm. me, which I had no idea. And I don't know how many people in our business know Probably. this part of your backstory. Explain to the people who you worked for and at what time in American so, history. I've been in a lot of great moments in time where these opportunities are thrown at me and I just sort of run with them. So at Miami, they force you to have a double major. Sports medicine was a minor of mine and that was sort of a, a standalone. But in um, political science, as my second major, they make you take an internship. So 
I happen to be at the right point in time, the year 2000, an election year, where the Democratic National Convention was being held at Staples Center in Los Angeles. Mm. Being an L.A. girl, I'm like, okay, I'm going to come home from Miami this summer. My mom saw an ad on TV. She's like, anybody can apply to be an intern, apply to be an intern. So I was accepted. They um, linked me up, and I was a part of what would be considered the press credentialing team where every news agency and organization that needed a seat in the convention center to cover the DNCC would come through me. I then ended up linking with this guy named Chip Ellis, who was running um, uh, events and press at the time. And he said to me, and this is now my junior year of college, he says, you need to quit school, drop out, and come work for the campaign. What campaign are we talking about? And this campaign would be Gore Lieberman. Okay. So Al Gore running for president, Joe Lieberman running for vice president, and he's like, just quit school and come travel with us. I'm like, well, what does that mean? I'm not even 21 yet. Right. (laughs) Like, I can't even drink. Um, So it sprung me into this world of um, the building of a presidential campaign at the highest level possible. But so I I took off that entire semester to travel with the campaign. And what it meant was I became a RON, and that's an acronym for Remain Overnight. And as a Remain Overnight, you are responsible for all hotel activities. And there's also um, press activities. And you're responsible for the candidate's room. You're responsible for dealing with the Secret Service. You're responsible for making sure that the rooms are swept, that the candidate has all of their necessities, whether it's clothes or food. Um, And then I also then took on this role of, of becoming responsible for the briefing book. So if anybody doesn't know what a briefing book is, it's essentially a Bible that was one of those big six inch binders. And it was organized as a schedule for the day, a schedule of events for the president or the vice president candidate, presidential candidate. And it was organized generally the the candidates at that time, which was from July or August to November, were in three states a day. Right. So they were constantly doing probably five or six events. You have a manifest of people that are important dignitaries and politicians and um, you know, subjects that are a part of every single one of their, um, their, their stops. Talking points, everything. Talking with yeah. everything. Hmm. So it's like, it's not a chief of staff because you're not running policy or strategy or anything, but you're essentially an executive <clears throat> assistant at the highest level possible, running so many different logistics that to have that level of responsibility was nuts, but it also was the first time I was forced into a role where it's like, you're going to pull all-nighters, guess what, for like five months straight. Right. And you're going to be okay with it because right. there's a big level of responsibility there. And I loved it. Like, I thrive how, on that kind of pressure. How dirty is politics? It's pretty dirty. And it's also run by 20-year-olds. Like, that's, that's what I find that's is so fascinating. Thing. Yeah. Like, at the very, very high level, you have your strategists. Um, and then everybody else are ch- children. I mean, speechwriters right. are, are kids. And... I couldn't fathom that a country is run by individuals that don't have that life experience to say this is how and why and this is the right path. Yeah. And certainly there's a lot of adults, like so I shouldn't speak entirely out of turn, but a lot like all of the logistics are run by but kids. How much how much did the candidates step in to then revise, right? And oh, teach and teach the younger kids. I, I'm not saying this. No, I don't. 
I, I never heard any of those conversations. So they were just like, like cool, what, hand great. me what I'm saying hand today. Me, hand, hand me what I need to do. Great. Okay, I got it. And this is someone, you know, three years removed from high school. Pretty much. That Pretty much. is just. And they have their aides. And there's a lot of, you know, closed room um, conversations that I was never privy to in, in my responsibility. Sure. But to, to go under the hood of how a campaign is uh, managed and operate is just it's nuts but so i went from doing a lot of that and then they saw that i had such an innate skill for running logistics and like strategically and analytically thinking through process super type a A. that i then moved to nashville which was my first introduction to nashville which is now sort of home for my family and um i then was running every single team that was on the road for the entirety of Lieberman's side of the campaign, and sometime Hadassah's his wife as well. How jealous are you of the circus on Showtime? So jealous. I mean, that must be your dream project. <laughs> it's sort next of, to a sports project that is. has to be right there. It is, and because you lived the road, I, I lived it, and I've always found that somebody needs to do like I think Hillary um, before the circus. There was um, a, a documentary that followed Hillary's campaign. It was fascinating. I loved and every minute all, of it. It was only one semester? It was only one semester. Well, then we ran into um, Florida. Right. And, uh, and how much sister. interaction or did you ever run across the Clintons during that time? Um, well, so from that, I'm back in South Florida. And then um, I ended up, you know, it's just word of mouth and people see how um, gifted I will pat myself on the back. I am at throwing parties. I'm a, I'm a party planner. I'm a producer. We're all party planners. You're a snazzy really. dresser. <laughs> it's innate. So I um, linked up with Douglas Band and um, my dear friend at the time, Andy Correa. And Douglas Band was Bill Clinton's um, uh, personal aide. Okay. So Bill was raising money. In South Florida for his presidential library. He is now transitioning out of office at this time. It's um, probably December, January, February, sometime around there. Might have been February, March. Um, and they brought me on board to essentially be a producer, a party planner, event coordinator for all of Bill's South Florida fundra- uh, presidential library fundraising events. Guys, that's like your zone. For so, your fundraising. Yes. And so you're still in school. You're my, back in school. No, I hadn't gone back to school that year yet. Oh, this is a long so, break. Yeah. Well, it was a whole, some, a whole year. A whole year. A whole year off. Um, so now you're raising money for so the Clintons. So now I'm raising money for the Clintons. And it's everything from like hanging and producing events at Howard Kessler's house, who's the founder of American Express, up in Palm Beach. We're staying at the Breakers. Like there was the Shore Club Hotel where Nobu finally burst into the scene in Miami. And we're like taking over the penthouse, doing things there. And I'm, I'm sure. I'm traveling around in the back of the limo with the Secret Service and Bill. Um, President Clinton uh, is teaching me how to play his favorite card game. Oh shit! Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. You, I you, mean... you, you just said Bill there, <laughs> and then you quickly caught yourself and said President Clinton. So, Rachel, yes, did he tell you to call him Bill? Uh, he might have at at some point said that say, I could call him Bill. Call me Bill. He might. He might. I think he probably said that. How? And I was like 20 years old at the time. I mean, I was a baby. I'm not going to so. press you here. I'm not going to put you on the fryer. <laughs> but the one question I have to ask: How? often in all of your dealings mm-hmm. did you see hillary and bill in the same place at the same time when it never. was not for a camera op oh i never saw them in the same place never ever i i didn't yeah no 
Um, no, Bill was always, uh, President Clinton was always doing his thing. Um, raising money, shaking hands, kissing babies, being that charismatic storyteller that he is. He's and just, he's... Uh, you're, you're, you're dealing with high rollers, high yes. net worth people yes. in the greater southern Florida area yes. with Clinton as the name you're representing. And you're bringing cash in and you're throwing mm -hmm. these parties. Mm -hmm. I'm sure every man you met was a perfect gentleman during that time in that of era of the early are. 2000s. I'm so hard that <laughs> I brush everything off. Okay. I really do. Okay. I'm, um, I think growing up, uh, um, metaphorically speaking, in a locker room mm. gave me that mm. patina. I walked onto the University of Miami campus. I can't tell you how many phone numbers, how many knocks on my dorm room door I got. And I came in, one, with a high school boyfriend, and two, the Poor level guy. of professionalism. That guy, that guy I know. Had a well, we broke up after a semester. Yeah, of course. That, that, that <laughs> doesn't end never well. going to last. That doesn't end well. No. But I, I just, I brush it off. I put up that wall, and I'm like, I'm a professional. Mm -hmm. And there is a place for um, work, and there's a place for a social life. And my social life doesn't belong, um, you know, blurring those lines. Yep. And I would say I was pretty good most of the time. Like, I yeah. definitely dated a Secret Service agent for a little bit. <laughs> but that's a whole other story. Um, my mouth is... <laughs> A game. Oh, I, am, I thought he was the love of my life. I mean... You had like a bodyguard moment. Yes, I, I did. Like the movie. Yes. <laughs> you fell in love. I met him on the campaign trail. I mean, that's what happens. <laughs> How old was he? He was probably about 10 years older than I was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, he yeah. was definitely like 30 at the time or so. Um, How long did this little... His name was Mark. Oh, my God. Mark. He was so handsome. How long did this little thing last? Um, I mean, it's not... It not I mean, it only lasted a couple months. You're not breaking rules. They're, no. allowed, they're allowed to date. No. Yes, of course. Yeah, these aren't like the soldiers in front of Buckingham yeah. Palace where they're supposed to be <laughs> completely emotionless. Like, yeah. you can date a Secret Service yes. agent. Um, wow. I did. I did. But... Uh, How did that end? I think it's just people going there, you know, there's several ways. When somebody has a, I didn't know at the time, but when somebody has a career that takes them all over the world and they're yeah. never home, there's no chance for any real stable relationship. Is he the one that got but, away? No, definitely not. Have you looked him up on Facebook? He no. can't be on Facebook. I should, though. I there's should, no way. I should go back and Should stalk. we do this right now? No. <laughs> Should we, should we look up on Instagram doing, right we now? We can look up another ex of mine. Now. Okay, <laughs> I can play that game all day no. long. Um, well, can I, well, but, like, since we're heading into this direction, yeah. and we don't have to dig deep, oh, right? Yeah. I don't want to get horror stories, and it's not that kind of podcast. But in the era we're living in right now, right? We're in the middle mm -hmm. of the Me Too movement, and, and time is up. And you are a strong, badass, professional mm -hmm. woman that I've, I've admired for many years now. Thank you. I mean, just as a friend, right? Like, like in this business, since you yeah. came working for Zoo and worked your way up the ladder and you, you got to Turner and you got promoted at Turner yeah. and then, and then you left and then now you're here at Epics and you're running development for a premium cable network, your career history in LA and in Hollywood, just as a friend, how's it been in that regard? Like, is it worse than I, a dude on the outside imagine it to be, or is it pretty much exactly what I think it is, which is like there's assholes in every business and everywhere you work, you're going to run into a couple. Like, I th how bad I th has it been? I think that that's exactly what it is. The entertainment industry has um, uh, magnified yeah. the severity of it, yeah. but it's certainly not um, 
uh, industry, it, it is industry Industry's agnostic yeah, it, right. because it, it's rampant everywhere. Right. Um, certainly in sports. I mean, sports, entertainment, music, any um, anything that is visible, yeah. you're going to have that. I imagine it happens in law firms every single day. It, it happens in doctor's offices. Yeah. I just think that some men don't have a filter and some men are a little bit more inappropriate that they need to be. I certainly know that I'm um, a f- female that can take less offense to it because I've been in environments where that's the norm. And maybe I'm somebody who is um, – I'm complicit because I allow it to happen. But to me, I think that there's just – What do you mean? What do you mean you well, love it? Well, I, I, it's easier for me to put up a wall than it is for other – women who say there's a line and I'm not going to hug somebody. Hello. I'm not going to, you know, kiss them on the cheek because that's inappropriate behavior. Mm -hmm. That's where it becomes uncomfortable for me. We're like, Mm -hmm. we're friends. We're social. Like everybody who works in our business, we, those, those lines are blurred Mm -hmm. to the extent that we don't have to hold up a wall and say, I'm going to shake your hand and say hello. And then that's it. I feel like it's a, to your point, I feel like you're grandfathered in. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So I've, I've known you for so many years now and yeah. with, uh, other executives that you've known longer than me that you came up with, mm-hmm. you, where you started with this like young assistant, young executive social relationships where everyone went out yeah. and went to the same bars and had the same circle. Like, yeah, you hug when you see each other in meetings, you're grandfathered into a relationship that precedes any sort of stigmas. Now, yeah. oh, now, now it's like, no, there's no hugging. There, no. There, there, there's no hugging in my office. I'll tell you right now. I've got four, four strong, awesome women that work at Main Event Media. There's no hugs in my office. That's not happening. It's just like, but don't you think that's a little sad and disappointing? Because you're removing the personal level of I don't think what I'm can rob- become. I don't think robbing anybody of my hugs is going to, no. you know, is going to be a detriment to their career. But so. somebody should be able to give you a compliment and not take offense to it. I yeah. think that there's a line that's clearly crossed when it becomes sexual of nature, um, and that's inappropriate, and, and there's certainly no place for that in yeah. you know, a work or a social environment when I, it's, it's not um, you know, asked for. Going back to like it's, you know, it's profession agnostic, mm-hmm, that kind of behavior, mm-hmm. I think you do see a trend, though, where there are certain types of businesses that people – can definitely try to get into in the first place for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And I'll use Hollywood as an example. I always talk about why I first wanted to work in TV, right? As compared to why some other people may mm-hmm. have wanted to work in entertainment. There's a there's a big group of people out there that just grew up watching Entourage and want to be rich and want to go to the parties and want to be around models and want to go to the Playboy Mansion. And that's literally the depth of why they wanted to get into this business in the first place. Like I came up through the agency world. Like I saw those guys that were fresh off, fresh off the boat from like, you know, Missouri who watched Mm -hmm. entourage and wanted to be Ari gold. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of those people out there and some of the 80% of them don't last, but there's 20% of them do move their way up the ranks and start running departments one day. Right. And I think Hollywood caters to people that, have a lack of depth. Like I've always said, Hollywood is not one of those places where intelligence is a prerequisite to be successful. <laughs> unless you come to Epics. <laughs> yes, unless you come to Epics, of course, Epics and MGM right. and all affiliated corporations tied to the MGM brand. Um, it's not like to succeed in Hollywood, you have mm-hmm. to be, you have to have a creative aptitude mm-hmm. or you have to have a people 
aptitude. And then the people on top of that, that can mix in a business aptitude and mix in intelligence, basically can be a Mark Burnett or a David Eilenberg, right, are going to rise above the rest. But there's a lot of people that can make a really decent living having no intelligence and no depth of character. And they're just here because they can wheel and deal and be a people person, right, and just network and hustle. Right. Well, and it's upsetting when the ones that have that one of those four tenants, which is just the people side, because you're social, because you're a good salesman, those people that rise above the others who are truly one have depth of character yeah. and two are creative. Right. And if you have business as well, then well. <laughs> okay. Let's let's shower this portion of the interview off. Let's let's, let's go to the Turner. So when you yes. end up at Turner, you came from Zoo? I came from Zoo. Straight so, from Zoo. Straight from Zoo. I had been at Zoo for um an entirety of 10 years and at that point, you know, John and Barry and I did so much and I loved the opportunity that they gave me. I was a vice president at the time. We were acquired by all three media. We were integrated into that system. There was a succession. Wait, plan. wait, wait, wait. All three purchased though mm-hmm. was it was a big deal. It was a big deal. So when you when you hear about this, are you aware you're running their development at the time? Mm-hmm. Yes. Are you made aware of how much it's being bought for? I knew some details, some level of detail. I certainly didn't know the full extent of it. So but... do you wait for them to walk into your office to tell you how much of a bonus you're going to get? <laughs> or do you, knowing you, march into their office and go, so guys, now that you're multimillionaires, right. are you going to kick me a, right. a gift certificate <laughs> to an IHOP? I'm still waiting for them to buy me my beach house. <laughs> No, but seriously, was there no conversation about that at any time? Um, or were they like, hey, this is good for all of us? There wasn't, and here's why. Because uh, the the whole succession strategy was that five-year plan. Mm. I lasted three, okay. and then I, I dipped out. Okay. Um, I didn't last the whole five. And it was, in my mind, everything that I do has to be a growth engine for me because I'm constantly curious, and I'm an internal student. I just want to learn. And at that point, I was show running. I was doing Joan River and Melissa River's sh- uh, docu-series for WeTV. And that was a really stressful part of my life because I was practically living at Melissa River's home mm-hmm. to produce that show. And it was just really daunting. And then um, we launched... And also it's awkward because Barry has a very long, long standing relationship with Joan. with Joan and Melissa at that time. Yes. So you're placed in the middle. In the middle. Yeah. And I, Joan and I got along so well. And um, she taught me a lot. Like one, she taught me how to run in heels on a treadmill, which I will be forever <laughs> grateful. <laughs> and then two, she, she said, Rachel, you work too hard. You need to go to sleep. Wait, hold because on. Joan I, Rivers exactly. of all people said you work too hard? Exactly. And I, we were up and I was, um, we used our production office, which was in a pocket door next to the guest bedroom in Melissa's home where Joan would sleep. And you would see that on the show. And Joan would be up writing her cue cards, writing her script notes, writing like everything that she needed to prep for the next day's scenes. And I would be typing away on my computer, doing my schedules, doing like shot lists, whatever I needed to get done. And 1130, at night, she would knock on the door and she's like, Rachel, you're working too hard. You need to go to bed. And I'm like, you're up too. You are working. So why am I? Did she wear a nightcap? Why do I imagine Joan Rivers with a nightcap? <laughs> a beautiful flower, little nighty yeah. <laughs> with fluffy slippers. That but did she wear a mask? Lettuce. Did she wear a mask? Um, I don't remember her wearing a mask. I imagine her wearing actually. like just a, just a satin. No, she just sleeps with her eyes a open. A silk mask. 
So, so like straight out of that series, like took a lot of years of my life. I think I started going gray at that point. Um, and you want a further education. You want to be a buyer. And, and I wanted to be a buyer and it was really like, there were so many catalysts, but that show was coming to an end. Then we created a sh- series called prank stars on Disney, which was their first unscripted um, series that uh, was great. And then our, host of the show, this guy named Mitchell Musso, who's lovely, got a DUI, and then the show was canceled because mm. he was underage, and mm. it's this whole ordeal. So I'm like, this is a perfect time for me to move on. I want to be a buyer. I didn't know it was going to be so easy to get a job, knock on wood. <laughs> I was out of Zoo, and three weeks later, I was at Turner. No way. Uh, literally three weeks. And it was precipitated by a conversation that was at lunch I had with Brooke Carson, who's at Warner Horizon, and I just adore her. And she said, there is an exec who I'm dear friends with at Turner. Her name's Lila McCarthy, and they are looking for an unscripted exec. And I came in. I remember my first meeting was with Brett Weitz, who's now the EVP at at TBS. And Lila McCarthy was an SVP of of drama at TNT at the time. And um, that meeting was amazing. I feel like they were sort of bored because it was right before a a summer Friday and a vacation, (laughs) and they were leaving. And... Brett was like half sleeping through the meeting. He's like, you're great. You're great. You're great. And neither of them work in the unscripted they, space. They didn't know anything about it. So they're right. like, educate us. Just tell us what you would do when you come in. And I was, I pr- prepared for that meeting and I wasn't nervous because I'm confident in my skills, uh, but I had never been a buyer before. I, I didn't know how networks run, but they're like, you're great. You need to meet with Michael Wright. So I then spend probably the next two weeks. I remember being my 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 buddy, um, one of my Miami friends, uh, his name is Rich. He had a cigarette boat, and we would go to the Hamptons. And I remember being on that cigarette boat, literally driving out to the Hamptons, the probably going like eighty miles an hour. The life you've led, <laughs> Rachel Brill. <laughs> Cigarette boat and Hamptons, two things I've never experienced in my life. Oh, my God, don't look for the magazine cover because I am on a magazine cover. Of the Hamptons? On that cigarette boat driving out to the Hamptons, yeah. There's like a whole spread. What year is this? Um, 2011. Oh, we can find that. (laughs) We can find that. Uh, So I'm on this boat, and I get a text from Michael's office that says, we need you to come in tomorrow. I'm like on my way to the fucking – sorry, excuse me. No, you're fine. Um, Have you already flown out at this point? I I was in New York when You're I got this York. text message. You need to be back in and Burbank. And I need to be back in Burbank tomorrow. To meet with Michael Wright. To meet with Michael Wright. And you want the job. So, so you're not going to say, hey, can you push it? I, I wasn't going to say, no, I'm going to push it. So I'm on my, my phone if you now. Say, if you say you got on a private flight, I swear to God. I did not. No, okay. I wish I, wish okay. I had those means. I thought not, you that's you, not my reality. So I call the Secret Service. <laughs> so and I, I say, Mark, I'm like, remember me? <laughs> I'm in LA. I need I need to meet with this guy named Michael. Um, but I remember spending that entire boat trip going sixty, probably sixty miles an hour. Eighty is an over exaggeration. But I'm holding onto the rails, just thinking in my head, now analyzing what I'm going to prepare for this meeting. Yeah. I then hop on a plane. I take the six like there's a five forty five or a six a.m. flight out of JFK straight back to LA, and the entire time, so I haven't slept at all. Red eye. Uh, red eye <clears throat> and I'm typing on the compl- on the plane because I had my computer with me and I create this eight page like dissertation of here's the analysis of TNT and TBS. And Joan Rivers and- jumps out of the cockpit like Rachel you're working too hard go to <laughs> Joan sleep. actually wrote me a letter of recommendation to Michael. Shut up. She did. She did and it was the sweetest thing ever. So I don't know if that helped get me jo- the job. I mean if but- Joan Rivers writes you a letter of recommendation and Michael Wright yes. being a giant pop culture yes. fanboy yes. that he is at his core. Yes. That must have 
made it a probably difference. sealed the deal. Yeah. But I remember walking into Michael's office, and I think this speaks like so um, highly of his character. I walked in, and I was like nervous as hell, but I was prepared. I had this eight pages, like. I had rehearsed and over-rehearsed the speech that I was going to give if he gave me the opportunity. He walks in. He says, sit down. He's like, I've heard such wonderful things about you. Your reputation speaks for itself. The job is yours if you want it. What? I just wanted to get to know you. He said, hey, bro, can you just FaceTime me? I was in New York in the Hamptons. Your office could have said I already had the gig. This could have waited till Monday. I was on a boat in a bikini. No shit. You're in the Hamptons. You flew back for, oh, yeah, I just wanted to meet you. How long was that meeting? It was an hour. We, okay. So we actually hour. like spent time getting to know wow. one another. So I gave him my origin story. And he's the best. He told me about his and he's just the best. I mean, how do you walk into a meeting? You've never worked at a network before. So your reputation is really hearsay. You know nothing about unscripted, but you're going to now trust that this exec you're hiring. Yeah. It, and that's, it's the Did same. Did you ever hear like of other people you knew that might've been up for the gig? I didn't know. I have no idea. That'd be interesting to go back and see. I should ask how I many other because you probably know everybody that you're up. Well, against I know at the time. David Eilenberg came in then nine months after. Um, so let's get to that. <clears throat> yeah. When 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 David comes in, were you told early on? Eventually, we're going to bring in like someone to be the head of the yes. department. Yes. You were. Yeah. So that wasn't one of those like, oh, they brought in the white guy to be over me. Like, um, no, no. I mean, I did. I don't think I knew day one or maybe even yeah. day three, month three that they were bringing in somebody. But Michael kept on alluding to the fact that they okay. were going to bring in um, a senior level exec to really build and scale that department. And if that was anybody else other than David Eilenberg. <laughs> There might have been some furniture moving in that place. Oh, I think so. But when David Allenberg walks in, you're like, okay. It it was great. And honestly, like Michael gave me the heads up right before the hire was made. He's like, what do you think about? It's Mm -hmm. always one of those like, oh, tell me. This is happening. (laughs) This This is happening. But I'm going to. He didn't say I already closed the deal. But obviously at that point, you know that the deal has been signed and he starts on Monday. But it was great. And how much? How did you know David? I did. Yeah, from fifth grader. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, right. The zoo connection. Yeah. So, so you... I developed fifth grader with John and Barry. We took it to Mark Burnett. Right. Um, David Eilenberg was running. Um, well, he was sorry, not running at the time, but Roy Bank was running development, and David was a development exec. Should I get Roy and Bank then, on the show? Probably. I would love to hear what he's been up to. I would too. Roy. Roy is. Roy's got some stories. Oh yeah. And Roy will yeah. let it fly. Mm. Roy Bang, I, I've got, I'll tell you some personal stories about Roy off the air, but he actually okay. gave me uh, one piece of advice I'll say on the air for Roy that I, I do owe him is he took the time to have lunch with me when he was running development for Burnett. Uh-huh. And I was just, you know, scrub development guy for Ben. Yeah. He took the time to take me to lunch. We went to Boa uh-huh. on Sunset. Sunset. And it was about credits. And he was like, you should always fight mm. to get an EP credit from mm-hmm. Ben. And here's why Ben will give it to you. Mm-hmm. And you should always be comfortable fighting for it. Credits are free. Yeah. They are. Credits don't cost the production company anything. Yeah. It's just a name on a screen. It's a yeah. name on paper. Yeah. So you should fight for that. The yeah. money is one thing. Right. But if you're willing to accept that loss, yeah. you can go fight for a win by getting the credit you want on a show. Exactly. And he's totally right. And yeah. when I make deals now with third-party partners or people that bring me projects, I'm never greedy with, no, they can't share an EP credit or they can't get three EP credits. It's up to the network anyway. Yeah. So why should I fight that fight and say, no, why should I kill that in the negotiation? It costs me nothing. Yes. 
And at the end of the day, nobody reads the credits anymore because there are no credits anymore. Right. <laughs> this isn't family ties. You know, this isn't full house where you start with the created by credit. Right. No one reads credits on unscripted shows anymore. Right. Anyway, that's the Roy Bank. Uh, that's a great lesson I got, right? in philosophy. All right. So David comes in and you're at Turner yes. for how long? I was there for three and a half almost four years i four think years. it was when i finally got laid off um, that's what it was right yeah it was a layoff it was so it was part of turner 2020 and it was um this massive wave of reorg and restructuring and it was less and unscripted was, too at the time they were going to start was, doing less of it well you know it was again precipitated by the fact that steve coonan left after coonan left um, Michael Wright left to go run Amblin Pictures with Steven Spielberg. And that just then was this sort of what I would call a downfall of our community, our family. Like everything was starting to crumble because everybody was leaving. Um, Kevin Riley came in. The uh, What I heard was that Kevin Riley doesn't appreciate Unscripted um, in the same sense that we all did and felt that there was a place for it on TNT and TBS and was starting to chip away at the department. Mm-hmm. So one by one, the chips fell. And David Allenberg goes to ITV. Everybody left. I mean, there is one remaining executive there that is from the original regime, hmm. um, from David and myself, which is Michelle Byers, and she oversees um, late night and specials and right. is doing an amazing job and was my deputy on the TNT side with Cold Justice. And yeah. she's just a, she's awesome. a lovely human being. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm happy that somebody's there, but we had a team of eight, like David right. had me plus another six, ho- so Holly, Holly and Kevin and yeah. Lori and Beth and yeah. Michelle, a good and, crew. Beth, sure. Yeah. Beth Ballou. It was a great, so everybody's gone, gone their separate ways, but we are so proud of everything that came out of there. I mean, you think about cold justice and how that still lives on, on oxygen now, but that was our baby. Yeah. I mean, spending so many hours and days in the field with Catherine Vaughn and the elves and really that that magical team of the magical elves that made that series come come to light and solving cold cases and bringing closure to families. I mean, everything about it was, I think, what that network stood for, especially in the true crime and procedural space, which is right. how TNT really It was the built perfect their- unscripted perfect. compliment. To the TNT Perfect. procedural yes. crime drama it was. that they were known for. It was the highest rated unscripted series beyond um, Great Escape, which will... <laughs> hey, you got to work with Rich Eisen. <laughs> yes, you got, exactly. You got to work with we, Rich Eisen. We love Rich Eisen. Yeah, notch that up. Check <laughs> not, that box. Not bad at all. I, I, funny story about Rich Eisen. <laughs> when, I, when I met Rich Eisen, uh, we first met at my uh, Ben's uh, country club, which is Hillcrest. Mm-hmm. We meet. Um, ben uh, stays at the club to conduct some meetings. I walk Rich out. We're waiting at valet for our cars. I get into my car first. Mm-hmm. I'm the biggest NFL guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love Rich Eisen. Yeah, me too. I actually listen to Rich Eisen's podcast at this time, like uh-huh. at, this, yeah. at this moment. And I get in my car and I'm like, I can't believe I just like BFF'd with Rich Eisen. Like we're going to get a project going. This is amazing. Yeah. And I let out like a girlish, woo, like ah, I just met Rich Eisen, <laughs> like in my car as I'm driving away. <laughs> Little do I realize, for some reason, the effing valet opened my sunroof. Oh, no. So he heard you. He heard me. (gasps) 
Did he set? Did he run no, through he never brought it up. But I'm sure he was like, oh. Oh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask him about so it. So he's not as cool <laughs> as I thought Jimmy might be. And I swear to God, he remembered it because the next time I saw him, we were in New York for the Turner Upfronts. Yeah. And the next time I saw him, he was like really nice to me. Yeah. But I could tell it was kind of treating me like with kid gloves because he knew I was like a super, super fan, fan and didn't want me to pass out. Oh, but that was no. probably my most embarrassing moment with a piece of talent. He will definitely remember it. Rich has the best memory. Yeah. I mean, I just, we just had a meeting with him a couple of weeks ago and he was telling me a story of our Alcatraz episode for right. the great escape. Yeah. That and was the premiere episode. It was right? our premiere episode. And it was just the worst, worst <laughs> fucking night of our lives because it's 4am and it's pissing rain outside. It's like, with Charlie Ebersol, 33, that, right? Charlie Ebersol, Justin I mean, Hawk. Yeah, Charlie's oh, Char- having a baby. By oh, the way. Tra- oh, good for him. <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, Epics. You went on yes. a little bit of an eat, pray, love. I did. An eat, climb, love, yes. soul-searching moment. Like, I remember when you left Turner, like, I would be friend. I was friends with you on social media, and I'd yeah. see these posts, and I'd be like, where in the world is she now? <laughs> like, she's climbing up the face of what? Like, landmark? Like, what's the deal? Yeah. And you just can you talk a little bit about that detour before you got here at Epics? Yeah. So, so my detour was um, I get laid off by Turner and uh, timing again, like everything in my life is timing and I, I've had such fortunate luck, but I had just come back from climbing or hiking Mount Kilimanjaro because I went on this month, not of a sabbatical, but I took two weeks off over the Christmas break and I had just finally gotten out of my legal nightmare of a four-year divorce. And Mm. I made a promise to myself that my entire life was spent working around the clock because it's easy to just disconnect from reality when you throw yourself into 18 hours a day at work. So that was the easy path for me. I made a promise that I would do something for myself once I was on the other side of my divorce and paid off my legal bills. And I registered to climb Kilimanjaro. At the time, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know what kind of training I needed to do. Had you done any climbing? None. This was all new? No, just like recreational hike to Mescal Canyon or something um, Los Leones, nothing major, but I then decided I, I discovered soul cycle, became a soul cycle fanatic oh, right. that was that because too. I'm yeah. a crazy type a, and I immerse myself a hundred percent in everything I do. So I use soul cycle to train for it. Soul cycle healed me emotionally, Wow! like tri- got me into the fitness shape to climb Kilimanjaro. I come out from Kilimanjaro and it was life changing to the extent that I mean, I'll, I'll tell a sad uh, digression for a second, but um, so many people through social media and through our community and reality TV came to me because they were interested in knowing what that was going to be like, what that trip was going to be like. They wanted me to document it. I honestly started my Eat, Pray, Climb Instagram account mm. for Dwayne Johnson and Danny hmm. because they, in one of my meetings, when I mentioned it, they're like, you can't. Do, do that. Like, we need to know where you are. You need to document it. You need to, like, post updates. So we need to make sure. that's what started the handle? That's what started it. Because they said, we need you to document it so we can make sure that you're okay. You're going on this trip to Africa by yourself. By the way, like, I went to Europe by myself for, for 10 days leading up to that to tour the Christmas markets by myself. Mm. I just, like, I said, I'm going to go away for a month. I'm going to travel and do all this stuff by myself, mm. for myself, because I need to have that moment where I can discuss connect my reality which was my divorce and then this job that See, at I'm the time, so immersed in. I didn't know anything about the divorce. 
Yeah, that's, I that I was the whole catalyst. I didn't know you were dealing with that. I didn't know mm. it was coming off the heels of it. Oh, God. And, and a layoff. I mean, that's an amazing I mean, time I, in your life. I like Posnick and, and Stevens, and they really got me through it. But, I mean, there was there Do was I so know much, the guy? No, he was a banker. Okay. And he was much older than me, and yeah, just not right. Um, but it was it was nuts, and it was a four-year legal battle over nothing. We have no kids. We had no houses. We had no property or, like, anything together. It was just, you know, two people that— Are you going to date guys your own age now or younger? <laughs> I don't know. The Secret Service guy was 10 years older. <laughs> yes. Are you going to date yourself like yes, a guy like that? I think so. <laughs> okay. Okay, I think cool. I'm go back to my own let's, age. Let's try it. Um, or younger. Or younger. Or younger. Just go. No, I think younger is the key. I think so. Younger go. Younger has the energy to keep up with me. I mean, that's the real problem. Well, f- yeah. I mean, the climbing you're doing. Yes. I, I don't even know how you get from point A to point B. Because well, so, I'll uh, see you in a pitch meeting <laughs> on a Thursday. And then, like, on Instagram Saturday morning when I'm, like, taking my girls to the mall, you're at the top of a peak. Yes. With, like, your running mate, Alex Hartley. And I'm yes. like, how are these women getting there yes. in the amount of time? from when I just saw them because we don't sleep I mean I she sleeps I don't I don't sleep I I don't uh, it's so cliche to say you'll sleep in your dad but there is so much life to be lived Mm -hmm. after like living through some of the uh, hurdles and obstacles that I that I have lived through whether it's bullying or you know the divorce and a husband who was a bully um, who Mm -hmm. literally told me I would never amount to anything and that I'm working for no reason and that I should just sit at home and like not have kids oh he didn't he didn't respect your professional ambition at all the ambition at all and that's thing like i need somebody who respects that girl and who wants to be a partner girl how did wait (laughs) how do you how do you of all people end up married to like isn't that something you would sniff out during the dating i was 23 i got married at 26 i was way too young to understand i wasn't self-aware so when you say it was a four-year divorce how long were you married three years Oh, you're married three years and the divorce is yeah, for so seven years was the period of seven time. Seven years of my life, yes. So it was Got all it. my entire twenties and, and my early thirties. Got it. But so I go on I, I do Kilimanjaro, I have this life changing epiphany. I then come down from the mountain and the first thing on Facebook I see is that Howard Schultz had passed away. Ugh. And Rob and Howard, you know, I had a series with them at TNT called Seventy Two Hours. Yeah. And they gave me GoPros to document it. So it's like mm. there's more to life than just working away. Like we love what we do and we wouldn't change it for the world, but I needed something else. I then eight weeks later get laid off by Turner. So I've now come from this moment of high where I need some sort of balance and something it happened to at the right time. provide me with, with happiness. And it just so happened that it was climbing. So instead of saying, Oh, I got laid off, but Hey, I have a really nice severance. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I need to like rush into a job. I don't have kids. I don't really have responsibility. I can be a little selfish. So I said, fuck it. I am going to be selfish. And Adam Scher gave me one of the best pieces of advice. He's like, the jobs are always going to be there. Like, you are incredible. Yeah. You will find something. Go and just disappear. Yeah. Go and do whatever you want to do. And I actually saw him last night at, um, at Wally's. And said hi, but um, that that piece How? of advice lived with me, and I then immediately signed up for mountaineering school up in Seattle in the Cascades, the uh, an expedition company called Alpine Ascents, and they're like the four seasons of mountaineering and big extreme alpine climbing, and it became a passion because I allowed to transfer the pain and suffering of other people and an industry pushing me to whatever their box of success was and mountaineering allows me 
to check my ego, to say this isn't about me, this is about Mother Nature, and if I want to push myself to get to the top of that mountain, I know that I'm the one doing it, mm. not anybody else. Yeah. And that power and that shift is how I allowed myself to say it's okay to have balance, it's okay to do something that's a little selfish, that's for you, that's not to please the corporation or the bosses or the husband or the children or your parents or your family. Like those are all pressures that we all have yeah. and you need a balance. Are, you, I think mentor- I was- are you mentoring younger female executives in this business? Um, Cause if you're not, you need to be. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I-, I think I am somewhat indirectly. I, I mean, certainly in every company that I've been at, I've had um, mentees, but yeah. Yeah. What would be the biggest difference in your psyche from the executive I knew at Turner mm-hmm. before all this mm-hmm. to how you approach your work now? Um, you can't be perfect. Okay. I, I think that... So you're just easier on yourself now. I'm, I'm easier on myself, and I, I think that I'm maybe a little bit easier on producers and our, our partners as well. Mm. Um, I certainly strive for success because I... I force that upon myself, but I know certainly in a position here and the opportunity we have at Epix, like we're a small, nimble team. You have to do a lot. You're not going to be able to get back to everybody every single day or the minute or the hour or even 24 hours after somebody sends you a pitch that they want you to hear or a meeting that they want set. Like you can't do everything. And I think that it had it not been through for the um, obstacles that I faced, the adversity, and then just mountaineering as that metaphor for life and being in extreme situations and knowing that it's beyond your control and that you can't type A the the shit out of everything. Um, That's okay. And and nobody's going to judge you for it. How many weekends out of the year are you going to be on a mountain? Uh, Probably 40. Holy shit. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. I mean, when we're training, so mountaineering season is generally summer and winter. So Alex Hartley, my climbing partner, and I can train from January through May for a summer climb. And then I've been pretty lazy the last six weeks. She's still at it every single weekend, but I needed a little break. And, uh, you know, if we're going to climb something, we're going to go to Ecuador and climb two or three big peaks there for Christmas. So we'll, like, start seriously training maybe right after the 4th of July holiday. And that's pretty much like one day a weekend. It's 6,000 feet of vertical climbing, which could be, you know, four, six, eight hours on a mountain. Wow. Um, another three, four hours of driving. But it's like, it's it's a routine. And if I know I can wake up at 4.30 on a Saturday and be in nature and really punish my body in healthy ways, both mentally and physically, I think there's nothing better. And I, I do believe that my work is better for it and that everybody in, in my mm. universe um, benefits from it. So You're doing great. Well, thank you. Congratulations on the success. <laughs> and I can still wear heels and a dress. That's right. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. That was awesome. Was, was that so okay? Fun. It was uh, fantastic. I feel that I didn't talk about epics enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, People can learn about that later. <laughs> yes. Thanks, Rachel. 